You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're thrilled today to be joined again by Dr. Monica Gandhi, a close friend and much admired leader in global health in many spheres, which we'll hear about. Welcome, Monica, and thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you. Monica is Professor of Medicine and Associate Division Chief of the Division of HIV, Infectious Diseases, and Global Medicine at UC San Francisco slash San Francisco General Hospital. She also serves as Medical Director of the HIV Clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, the legendary Ward 86. It's great to have you back with us again. Thank you so much. You know, we've seen your opinion and your work across the spectrum of issues. So we're going to cover a lot of things here. I wanted to start with your thoughts, your reflections on the outcome of the Governor Newsom recall, which in a de facto and and often very visible way became a referendum on California's approaches towards COVID-19, on the broader national approaches, and what did it tell us about opinion? Obviously, there were some stumbles that fed this, the French Laundry episode of Governor Newsom appearing unmasked at that fancy Michelin three-star restaurant in Napa Valley. Bad timing, bad look. But there were also, this was a reaction fed by fed by a reaction among arch conservatives against many of the fundamental approaches on the pandemic. So what, what did you make of it? What was your experience of living through this? So, you know, as a Californian, actually, I think that up to the time of the vaccination program in the United States, there were actually more bipartisan support that Governor Newsom's approach, there were difficulties that approach. And there was a a profound lockdown mentality that sometimes did not fit with biology. So where did that not fit with biology? Closing the outdoors over the last winter surge closing outdoor playgrounds. And fundamentally, and I think this led to something to do with his recall, I don't actually believe that it was just a right-wing led approach, was the school closures in California, which were 50, we were 50 out of 50 in opening our schools. Actually, the city in which I live, San Francisco, kept their schools closed for a full 18 months. We did not open until fall of 2021. And so there, there was a true referendum on that degree of actually non-science-based, non-harm reduction approach to pandemic control. And then the vaccines came and everything changed because actually vaccines are truly the only way to get through this pandemic. Any differences in approaches of lockdowns, mask mandates, distancing, testing, contact tracing, it made differences. But the biggest key to getting to the end of the pandemic are the vaccines, our immunity. That uh, That is what infectious disease diseases have taught us again and again over the years. On this first phase where you said, okay, this was less about partisanship. It was more about the measures and were they grounded in science and the in your view they were extreme in the approach to school closures 18 months lockdown san francisco 
outdoors playgrounds and the like. That did result in some popular discontent, correct? Absolutely. I do not think that this recall would have gained the momentum that it did if this was not, had did not have bipartisan support. And what you just pointed out, which was the French Laundry episode, which actually many did not really care that a governor went to dinner with his friends. It was more that it portrayed the need for human contact, the, the need to have nuanced, tailored approaches to pandemic control during the very difficult time prior to vaccinations. And there were aspects of this that no matter what were anti-progressive because it hurt the poor. And what do I think about in terms of being a long-term progressive? I think about programs to help the poor. I think about public schools as a place where people who don't have means get educated. Anyone who had the means in California sent their children to private school and they were all educated and the public schools were closed. It was a referendum on what I call the illiberal liberal. And I have no doubt that that contributed to the profundity of the movement towards a Governor Newsom being recalled. And without the vaccines, Biden wouldn't be where he is today and neither would Newsom because everything changed with the rollout of the vaccines. So you're pointing to the vaccines as the innovation, the intervention that then brought opinion back in support. Is that your argument? Yes, that is my argument. Because the vaccines are key. They're the only key to unlock what people call freedom. I mean, they're the only key to unlock what people call the freedom from restrictions. And the promise of getting out of the restrictions are most evident in in places like California, where we have the lowest transmission rates in the nation now with with not only a robust rollout of the vaccines, but frankly, the first time that a state used vaccine passports and vaccine mandates, something that President Biden put into his six-pronged plan several weeks back in vaccinating the nation. And it was done here first in California. And our vaccination rates are higher. Our transmission rates are lower than anywhere. And we're approaching that enviable position of Denmark, of Chile, actually, of Thailand, of UK, of Ireland, of of many places in the EU, Switzerland in in a week, places that are opening. It's freedom. It's what people deem freedom. How do you explain this exceptional exceptionalism about California, where it is right now with such high coverage, such low case counts? I mean, I was looking at the at the charts and it's astonishing. I mean, you had a huge peak and now it's down to very, very low levels. Yes, lowest in the nation. And we had a huge peak specifically, like you said, during Delta. And so what happened with the Delta variant is it came, it came like a hurricane and it hit places hard everywhere across the United States. But what was the difference in how it hit the South and Southeast and it hit California as it came up in July? The difference was we had cases. We absolutely had cases. This is a a very high number of cases. This is a highly transmissible variant. We had opened on June 15th. The state and Governor Newsom was not going to close down again, again, politically. And masks were put back, certainly. But schools absolutely opened in the setting of that because of the referendum on his performance on schools. 
and things continued, things proceeded. And yet what was happening at the same time? At the same time, we we had hospitalizations that did not mirror the rise in cases. The cases right. went up, the, the, the hospitalizations stayed flatter. They were decoupled from cases because the more vaccination that you have in a society, the more likely you are to prevent the dreaded, the most dreaded thing that can happen with COVID-19, which is severe disease. In addition, two things were put into place. Vaccine, there were vaccine, uh, certainly increases naturally in people getting vaccinated. That happened all over the country. But truly, this was the first state that put into place de facto vaccine mandates. It wasn't absolutely required, but you would have to continually test if you're a state employee. If you didn't get the vaccine, we have large tech companies here that all said their employees had to be fully vaccinated to go back. They had the right as a private company to do that. And then cities, San Francisco, LA, quickly put in vaccine passports. You can't go into a restaurant. You can't go into a gym without showing your vaccine card. So it started, this place started the movement. The California experience has also proved the point that is now a major question in front of the Biden six-point approach, which is that if you move to mandates in this way and you move to credentialing or passports, different institutions, school systems, corporate employers and the like, the vaccination coverages will jump. They will jump. They will jump. They have jumped in California. They will jump nationwide. And though there are concerns amongst Americans with uh, Biden's rollout, 60 percent of the U.S. does support when he used the M word uh, uh, vaccine mandates in a speech. It was not a shock. And already we have seen companies approving and sort of being empowered by his statement that 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 vaccine mandates are going to be legal and ethical in the United States. So it becomes a very important background factor in the confidence that the Biden administration's brought in introducing this six-point plan. No doubt. To me, what what Newsom did is not actually provide confidence to Biden in other ways to control the virus, um, which are lockdowns, mass distancing, ventilation, all of that had issues and had scientific debate in terms of the extent of those were needed, which places were needed, was outside needed, masks inside. But what changed was the power of the vaccines and the fact that we of all developed nations who had high access to the vaccines were among the bottom in terms of our vaccine uptake in this country. Because of politics and because of misinformation and mandates, it's almost like you tried everything and mandates became the tool. And let me switch to the big picture by that, I mean, where are we heading? American opinion in this, in this last period of the Delta, we went from high optimism spring, early summer to a sharp drop to very pessimistic and fearful, fearful opinion climate within the United States. You've made some very strong statements about how the notion of fear and thinking about the future plays out among Democrats versus Republicans. You're also looking at the situation in terms of are we heading towards a pathway out through immunity? Can you explain a bit about how you're looking at the future and whether we should be pessimistic, optimistic? And what do you mean by immunity is the path out? So, yes, thank you. So what I mean by this is that um, one thing that I have a view of, and, and many people do, is the history of infectious diseases. And, the, and, and by being grounded in the history of infectious diseases and 
and sort of living and breathing concepts of ID my whole life, you, you get a sense of what, what it means to contain a virus. And there are sort of four ways, you know, there are four very strict public health definitions of containing yeah. a communicable disease. There's control, where with ongoing intervention, you get it to a place of calm that we can all live with. There's elimination where you take the disease down to zero in one area. There's a, the eradication where you eliminate it, uh, you know, world wide, only one one virus is we've managed to do that smallpox. And it had very unique features that allowed that features that COVID does not have, like a very distinct clinical syndrome, no animal reservoir, no animal reservoir, exactly right. And a highly effective vaccine. Um, But it was so distinct, you knew when someone had smallpox, there were literally telltale signs, right? And this is COVID overlaps with a number of syndromes. And then finally extinction, when you take the lab based stores that you have a smallpox and you destroy them, which we haven't. So we, I believe that it is not pessimistic. I think it is optimistic to say that we will get to control of COVID-19 and control of COVID-19 is absolutely something we can live with. I know people wanted elimination. They wanted this to be different than an endemic respiratory virus, but I don't think we ever could have gotten there because of its overlapping syndromes with other viruses. But once we got Delta and how transmissible it is, You can lock down society all you want, like Australia, New Zealand, and it will sneak in. It will get in. It is highly transmissible. And so because of that and the trade-offs of lockdowns that we've seen after 20 months, we will live with this virus. We will get to a state of endemic control. We're not there, by the way, in the U.S. There are, again, countries that have accepted the endemicity with high rates of vaccination, and they are fully opening up. That's what well, Americans want is freedom, but, but they needed high rates of vaccination to get there. So what do I mean by immunity then only is the only thing that gets us through a pandemic? History has told us this. History has told us that malaria, TB, HIV don't have vaccines. We can't become fully immune to them. Those are These are ongoing epidemics right now in the world. However, a highly transmissible respiratory virus like influenza, for example, in 1918, it did, we did get through it. It was through terrible suffering and death because the only way to get through it was immunity, was through natural immunity. We didn't get a vaccine for the uh, influenza until 1942, 24 years after 1918. And so, you know, by that time, almost 5% of the population worldwide had died. But in this case, we got a vaccine and we got a vaccine very quickly compared to any other infectious disease. And so, again, looking around the world in places of high vaccination rates, when Delta hit, it did not cause that amount of severe disease. It unfortunately did cause more immunity in the population through natural immunity for people who had declined the vaccination in those countries and they're living with endometriosis. So we still, I understand your argument here, we still have to take account of the fact we don't have vaccinations yet for under 12s, right? So we got 48 million. We have hesitancy. We've got another 70 plus million that we still need of adults need to be vaccinated. We have a risk of long COVID that we don't understand very well, right? And we have the possibility of further mutation that could be more dangerous versus less, right? So We're still living in uncertainty and we're still waiting for things to come. We are still living in uncertainty. There is no doubt that sitting here in September 2021, we are not at the end of this at all. But the end game is not going to look like what 
people had hoped, I think. It's going to be endemic and circulating, but the end game is not a terrible way to live. And what I mean by that is, yes, we need the vaccines for our younger children. That's actually what Delta showed us, is that the degree of immunity we need to get through it is not the degree of immunity that we needed with a variant that was less transmissible than Delta. We will need children vaccinated. That is coming. It is absolutely coming this, actually within this calendar year. Second is that we do need the adult hesitant to get vaccinated. And Biden has chosen a path that I think is wise and absolutely precedented, which is mandates. And third is that we do need to accept the endemicity aspect of this virus with a highly transmissible virus. We can't we can't truly think that we'll get to COVID zero because the ongoing damage of that will be extreme and it will be drastically different across the United States in ways that will turn against President Biden in the midterms um, if states stay locked down. What you're arguing, of course, if we were in Australia, we'd be having a very interesting conversation, right, about these places that have walled themselves off and don't know quite how to reopen. And China being among those as well, Australia, New Zealand, these are peculiar places where the endemicity and the immunity, you know, moving towards control through immunity is an alien, remains a somewhat alien concept to the realities that they've created through their island existences. And so we have that debate going on. I want to ask you about boosters because, of course, the booster debate is very hot and fully upon us. You've said some some very pointed things. Just one quote. I think the messaging from the White House on boosters has served to terrify the vaccinated and made the unvaccinated think the vaccines won't work. That's a dramatic, powerful statement. Can you tell us more about how you arrived at that and how should we be thinking about boosters? And I'd like to get into the what does it mean to talk about cellular immunity and immune memory, because these are concepts that are terribly important, but which get in the popular discussion around boosters get lost. And yet they're central to your understanding of how we need to think about this. Yes, thank you. So essentially, you know, I came up with that line actually starting from July 27th because it wasn't just the booster conversation. It was the conversation around putting back masks for the vaccinated, which I think was prudent, definitely because we were not in control with the Delta variant, but that what they should have said is we're not in control. And instead, there was this question that the CDC and the White House raised that you can spread equally as well if you're a fully vaccinated person and you have a symptomatic breakthrough than if you're unvaccinated. That actually doesn't even make microbiologic sense because your immune system and this is going to go back to what we're going to talk about, cellular memory, may not kick in right away when you see a variant or the virus again. But because of cellular memory, your immune system will actually kick in quite quickly to produce antibodies. We'll talk about that and and hurt that virus, really hobble that virus. And you are unlikely to be able to spread as readily if you're vaccinated than if you're unvaccinated because you have adaptive immunity. So what does cellular memory mean? I mean, it's actually really simple. We somehow have had the scientific aspects of the immunology of COVID-19 discussed in the public discourse without nuance. We have um, spoken of antibodies because antibodies are very easy to measure. And 
many labs can do it. However, the antibodies are just one aspect of the immune system, very visible one for the public, but really how the immune system works has very little to do with antibodies. How the immune system works is that they're just two major types of cells, B cells and T cells that are generated by seeing the virus or better yet, and safely, more safely, seeing the vaccine. And we know this. We have so much immunology research now that's that's shown us, not only that we knew this before, but that you literally produce very strong B cells and T cells to the vaccines, even so far as biopsying people's lymph yeah. nodes and seeing memory B cells in them. And so what do these cells do? Well, they go into memory. They go into what's called banks. And they hide because you can't have your antibodies out there for every virus or every vaccine you've ever had because your blood, you wouldn't even be able to move. Your blood would be so thick with all these antibodies. So antibodies are going to come down with time, totally normal, not a glitch, totally part of the immune system. But these memory B cells and these memory T cells are always lying in wait. And if they see the virus again, what happens is memory B cells produce antibodies again, aided by the T cells very quickly to within maybe three to five days. So you can get a breakthrough yeah. if they've waned. They attack that virus. They even attack that virus more selectively because the antibodies they produce are directed against the variants. This has been several uh, studies out of the, the OHSU and UPenn that show those antibodies are directed against the variants and they will kill and bring down that variant. So these memory B cells and memory T cells are with us. And so saying talking about a booster was really about temporarily boosting antibody responses with the knowledge that your blueprint was still there to make those antibodies if we need them. And that discourse got lost in the conversation of the boosters and along with the masks for the vaccinated, I think really scared people. It made people think, wait, these vaccines, they told me that, that, they, that there's all these strong cellular memory made, but these vaccines aren't working very well. They're waning, but antibodies were waning. But not the memory cells. Yes, and and we know that. I mean, we've done more research on COVID and COVID vaccines than any other disease in human history. So I think it terrified the vaccinated that they didn't work. A lot of people ran out and got boosters because we have a leaky healthcare system that you could do this. And also President Biden and the HHS kept on saying it. And then the FDA, you know, really came down last Friday, just uh, three days ago in a very dramatic turn of events and spoke of cellular memory and spoke of the immune system and exactly. spoke of antibodies and said, sure, we'll boost people who are older because that ten- tends to be populations we give extra vaccine shots to, but not for the general population. And they were very clear. Do you think that our political system can withstand popular pressure for booster for a third shot? I mean, we've got a, over a million and a half people have already gone out in our leaky system and made their way. Some of them are already authorized to do that under current policy if they're immuno compromised and they meet certain conditions. So this is not just people working the system illegally or unethically necessarily, but people are also taking matters into their own hands. And there's fear, as you point out, and there's political pressure, even while people are saying, take those scarce doses and put them towards low and middle income countries that have such exceptionally low and dangerously low coverage rates, which is only going to fuel uncontrolled transmission, replication. Dangerous for us. Dangerous, not just for those countries. Yeah. I mean, our security hinges on what happens outside our country. And if we start absorbing a billion doses 
of scarce vaccine into boosters and not putting them towards where they should be prioritized, we're setting ourselves up for a cycle of failure in which low and lower middle income countries could be locked into 10, 15, 20, 30 percent coverage for a long period of time, which is going to be very, very dangerous and unhappy outcome. Totally agree. So, you know, um, no, I think I'm not sure Americans are going to withstand the confusion because it was tremendously confusing. You literally had the three major branches of the healthcare system and public health messaging in the United States, FDA, CDC, and HHS through the White House saying completely different things. And because of that, I think just like Democrats took a message from the COVID pandemic that was more fearful, and and people have written about this in your Times, David Leonard has written about this, that we overestimated the threat of COVID, that the, for example, the fatality rate of COVID, and Republicans underestimated the fatality rate of COVID, and that led to our drastically political response across the country, I think that there will be blue states and Democrats that will rush to get the vaccines anyway, the booster anyway, um, and, um, and likely Republicans won't. And there will be a lot of vaccines given that aren't under FDA regulatory approval. And do I think that's okay? I think it's okay, but I think it creates distrust. Um, yeah. And what I mean by okay is I do actually think the vaccines are very safe. Yeah. Um, but again, it will lead to greater fracturing. And the fracturing has been, you know, our our, our country's downfall through the COVID pandemic. So, yeah. um, but yes, I think a lot of people will go and get boosters. I want to just read you, uh, you mentioned the David Leonhardt piece, which was September 7th. You were quoted in a, a very dramatic statement. This is This is David writing, David Leonhardt. This is a strong statement. I just want you to to respond to this. I know that many Americans feel differently, i.e. that we can't really take a deep breath and relax. Our level of COVID anxiety is higher in America versus Britain or elsewhere, especially in communities that lean to the left politically. And there's no correct response to COVID. Different people respond to risk differently. That's a pretty sharp statement about political culture in America and the excess fear that we are seeing uh, on the left. You agree? Yes, I completely agree with his statement. And it actually was a reaction to the Trump administration. And that reaction has persisted. It is not allowed for nuanced discussion on the left. And this will get into the concept of nuanced discussion, but, and, and balanced scientific discourse. But what happened in this country is Trump said it wasn't that big of a deal, at least publicly, not to privately and COVID. And that led the left to say, no, it is not only a big deal, but it is more of a, it has a higher fatality rate than it actually does. It has, it will come and get our children. It will, it will completely kill us all. I mean, there was a, there was an element of reaction to the Trump administration minimalization of COVID. And that has continued such that it's considered the correct and progressive response to be over kill in terms of COVID responses and fear. It is the correct response to keep children masked until they get a vaccine. And maybe even after that, because the virus will be endemic, it is the correct response to keep college campuses 
even at 99% to 100% vaccination rate, like Columbia, Brown University, um, Yale, locked down and telling young people not to be around one another, even at 100% vaccination rate, which is not at all how other countries have responded um, at high rates of vaccination. Monica, do you feel we've entered a period here in America of a certain intolerance and a certain censorship that's getting in the way of a more nuanced and open discussion of some of these scientific issues? I do. I do. And I, I compare it very unfavorably to HIV in the sense that HIV, we were allowed to have different opinions. Scientific discourse was never just one way. Um, there were truly people who said, abstinence only is the only way to get through HIV. And there were, and, and those were scientists. And there were others who said, absolutely not. People have needs and human needs and human need for contact. Let me, let us talk about harm reduction and how to keep safe. And in this context of COVID-19, because of the politicization in the United States, more than any other place to, to talk about school openings or harm reduction or endemicity, which are all concepts that I think are true, that we needed to open schools. And I think it's going to be endemic. And I think the harm that people needed to be around each other for the last 18 months, those were, when I spoke about that, at least, and others, those were considered heretical because they didn't fit the narrative that no matter what, at all costs, COVID-19 was the only thing to protect us from. And this scientific, I have never been controversial ever, 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 just couldn't be more less controversial before the COVID pandemic. And there is controversy. People are shut down. People are insulted. People are called names. And yes, our level of scientific discourse is not nuanced. It's not balanced. It uses phrases like stay at home, get a booster, wear a mask and save lives. It doesn't use nuanced explanations. Outdoor is safer. Ventilation means this. Not We, we just lost our ability to have nuanced scientific discourses around the table. And I hope that will change, but it's been difficult. Yeah. I know we're getting close to the end of the time you have about this. I want to ask a couple quick things together as a sort of closing set of things. Today, this morning, I was riding, riding in on my bicycle to work. I went across the mall. This great local artist, Suzanne Furstenberg, has put 673,000 little white flags on the mall by the the Washington Monument. It's a profound, I mean, she did a smaller version of this up by the armory months back when our levels were at 240, 250 in the lead up to the inauguration. And now it's 673,000. And it's beautiful and it's profound and moving to see this there. And Suzanne deserves amazing plaudits for what she has done. Do you think the question that comes out of this when I past this exhibit, this amazing exhibit, the question that comes to me is, have we become inured to this scale of loss, this scale of death? Are we normalizing this? What's your thought? You know, I think what you just said about the mall, I kept on seeing that because I haven't been to D.C. yet. I see the AIDS quilt spread across the mall in 1987 and again in 2012 when we held the International AIDS Conference. And we became, yes, we became immune to the suffering and to the extent of the HIV epidemic in the United States. And it was politics. And what I do believe that we have become immune to 
how our politicization didn't make us work together as a nation, like Denmark and like other places where we trusted public health officials, and not only with restrictions, but fundamentally the vaccines. And we are we have become immune and we've made it political. And at the end of the day, what you just said is actually the thing to remember is that we lost this many Americans, actually so many more per capita than than other places who came together as a nation. And I am sorry that this happened in this country. And it, it wasn't one side's fault. It was both, but it was terrible that we became so separate from each other and so angry about the vaccines and so distrustful. And it's tragic what you just what you just laid out. Well, you know, one in 500 Americans have been lost now, which is an astonishing number. And that cuts across class, gender. Obviously, there are communities, black, Latinx, Native American that have been disproportionately impacted by this. And we know that those that are unvaccinated and, and, and particularly among evangelicals, conservative rural populations, younger folks, are now being very heavily impacted by this. So it cuts across our society. You would think that in time, we will see a memory and a constituency emerge for in support of really taking a, a serious retrospective analysis of what has happened to our country and how to strengthen that we can have a national commission. Philip Zelico and others have been carrying this concept forward and examining it very carefully. Having a constituency in America tied to those who've paid such a horrible price will be very important. Is the only way um, to honor them, actually, is, yeah. is that constituency and coming together. Yeah. We're out of time, so I want to ask you to ref just offer your thoughts. This Wednesday, President Biden is hosting a virtual summit on COVID-19 response. They put a framework out, talks about fixing the vaccine crisis, the gap. It's talking about saving lives by bringing forward the inputs needed, oxygen, PPE, many other things, healthcare workers, ample, and then investing in the future, both in bringing therapies forward like monoclonal antibodies, investing in getting the financing needed for countries to build their own capacities, creating a global threats council, states people that will come forward to sort of think about this. What's your thoughts on, the, on, on that moment that's approaching? It reminds me of PEPFAR and it reminds me of the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, that excitement that I felt in dark days of the AIDS pandemic that the U.S. was taking leadership and coming back to, I think, what makes the U.S. formerly a global health leader, which is to talk about other countries and the needs in the setting of a global epidemic with AIDS and a global pandemic with COVID is that we're all connected. So I'm very excited and hopeful about what I heard about this summit. And it is the way for President Biden to show that global health leadership for vaccine equity and for getting other countries out of it where we couldn't be any more together in this than in a respiratory pandemic. Nothing is is more shows us how connected we are. So I'm hopeful and I'm hopeful about the summit and I'm hopeful about President Biden's work over the last several months towards the pandemic. Right. We ask every guest to close with what gives you the greatest hope and optimism looking ahead. You are an optimist. You're a very openly honest optimist. So what gives you the greatest hope? 
What gives me the greatest hope <laughs> is that in a very short order of time, we developed vaccines. There are ways to get there. There are ways to get the population immune. And we will bring this virus down and we will vanquish it, not completely, but in a way that we can live with. And I'm very, very hopeful about the vaccines. Monica, thank you so much. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for your leadership and your remarkable grasp of the complexities of this and your ability to sort of make sense of it all. And I hope we'll see you soon in San Francisco. Thank you. And I'll come to DC. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you. <laughs>